Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the SciBeat Podcast, where your host, award-winning author and cybercrime journalist, Deb Radcliffe, interviews hackers, coders, intelligence experts, agents, officers, cybersecurity pros, and other interesting harbingers, heroes, and warriors. These conversations are sure to get you thinking. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, I'm Deb Radcliffe, host of The Beat, part of ITSP Magazine at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Thanks for tuning in. In this podcast, we will take a trip down memory lane with old-time hacker Del Chai, who's also an indie comic creator, longtime friend, and, as he likes to say, general lunatic. Back in the 90s, he helped me as a newbie investigative reporter on the cybercrime beat. There are many things about Del Chai you will find interesting. For example, not only is he an excellent technologist, but he's also an expert disc jockey and goes all out on full multimedia music events. I've been to some of them at DEF CON, so I can say this. In addition to his technical background, one of the things I find most interesting about him are his illustrated stories in his indie goth comic series, Noidutu. Del Chai also suffers from a range of issues that have made him reliant on a wheelchair to get around. This in no way defines him, but he has made it his mission to make DevCon more accessible for others who need assistance to get around. And that's just a short summary of who Del Chai is. Welcome, Del Chai. And hello. Good to have you here. Um, we're going to jump right into what you did at DevCon because that's the most recent. DevCon ended uh, Sunday and today is Tuesday. And I'd love to hear what your event was like when you were running around in your souped up wheelchair at DevCon, because I didn't get to go, and how it went when you helped other people with their special needs. What happened is I launched a program inside of DevCon called HDA, <clears throat> which means Hackers with Disabilities. And what I do is I coordinate between DEF CON, the venues, the hotels, and the attendees who have ADA requirements and make sure that we do the absolute best we can with the resources we have to make DEF CON, I would like to say, awesomely accessible, uh, to keep uh, things rolling for them, to keep access available, to make things comfortable where possible, and to make sure that they enjoy the convention as much as anyone else can. And do you have any stories to tell about anybody who was uh, in need or appreciative of your services while you were there? Or I know, for example, that you just made the pool accessible for the first time. Um, you have any stories you want to tell us? The, the pool accessibility is interesting because uh, what I had to do is work with the hotel to get a just just around the corner sort of back of house door opened and staffed in order to get in uh, a lot of times you'll see things like there's double doors they're not automatic doors. Uh, there's nobody there to help, and in this case, what I did was we hung a sign saying if you need help ask and we had a person on duty who was opening the doors for them. Uh, last year we ran into a problem because it wasn't always staffed. And then after that, there were stairs to get around and things like that. We did not have that problem this year. 
You said there was heavy goon involvement this year. And for those in the audience who don't know what goons are, they're the ones who walk around and keep order. They're usually pretty large people and they've got um, a red t-shirt on it that says goon in black letters. They're basically our security staff at DEF CON. You told me in a previous discussion that there was a lot of involvement from the goons when it came to things like opening doors and assisting. Well, there has to be. And the goons are there. You, you, you say security, and that, that is definitely a majority of what they do. But they're also there to help people out, to be tour guides, to make sure people know where they're going. You know, where is track number one? Where is track number four? Where's the bathroom? You, you know, they're, they're generally speaking there to help make everyone have a great time. Make <laughs> them have a good time. <laughs> when it comes to HDA, yeah. The goons have always been really good about helping people with disabilities and with ADA requirements, but I've expanded it to the point now where we have new policies, such as anyone with ADA uh, requirements who is in a line can be moved immediately to the head of the line. That means that a goon will escort them if they want uh, to the head of the line, like a registration line or a merchandise line or what have you. Uh, that's a new policy. We have other policies in place. Uh, goons will always open a door or help you get around an obstacle or change something. But it wasn't until HDA that we actually focused on these things. And there was someone, namely me, you know, going around and during the walkthroughs and during the tours, identifying problems. And then during the convention, identifying problems and trying to get them rectified. Sometimes it's as simple as there's a gateway that's too narrow. Sometimes it's uh, an elevator is broken down, an escalator stopped working. Uh, we need to make a path to go from point A to point B until the elevator is repaired. Those are the sort of things I do. That's cool. Your electric wheelchair was sort of a showpiece there. Can you describe it and how you used it and what people thought of it? I'm in a big old jazzy 1450 uh, motorized wheelchair due to a spine injury. And I tricked it out this year with a 14 inch monitor, uh, a couple of Raspberry Pis showing slides, playing music, and uh, a little bit of war driving, passive only, uh, to demonstrate that just because you're sort of in a wheelchair doesn't mean that you can't be a technologist, you can't be involved in technology. I can roll my wheelchair down the street and war drive just as well as the next person in a car or in a bus or on foot. And I want to show people, I want to inspire people to say, you know, it's not over. The, the, the game isn't over because you've been temporarily or partially sidelined. And you can still be a part of this, whether that means strapping a couple of Raspberry Pis to your chair, or if it means putting a transmitter on your chair or doing whatever you want there's really no limit to what you can do. And all it takes is a little motivation and some belief in yourself and you can do it. Gosh, you make me wanna cry. That's so inspirational. Thank you. Um, when I met you, you were not in a wheelchair, but you had a gorgeous cane, as I recall. And I was wondering if you could tell me uh, or tell your version of how we met. I was a newbie reporter and I know I was sort of dumped on you by some other more senior hackers, but you really did help me with my career. And I'd love to hear your version of that story. Well, it all started out at a DEF CON many, many years ago. Now, I didn't even know DEF CON existed. Uh, when I was, I was living in New York City and I discovered the Hope Convention. 
and I had met Emmanuel Goldstein and I had been on uh, Off the Hook and I had uh, attended some of the meetings and then all of a sudden there was this convention. And it was at that convention that I met other members of the hacker community, uh, some I knew from IRC, which should tell you how old I am, mm-hmm. and some I had only met, you know, in person passingly. And before you know it, I was sitting there, you know, having drinks and sharing stories with some of the great names uh, in, in, in hacking. And one of them said to me, you know, well, you should come to DEF CON. And I'm like, what's a DEF CON? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when I figured it out, I was on the next plane to Vegas. So it's my first DEF CON. It was downtown uh, at the plaza. And I was hanging out with my new hacker friends. And along comes this reporter. and they were like oh god it's a reporter and they kind of looked at me and said look this is your moment uh you got to take one for the team uh get keep this reporter away from us you know so we can party Uh so there you and i went wandering around defcon together looking here looking there looking at this and uh and that i had uh, saved them from the rigors of having to talk to a a reporter and that was uh the first notch in my belt if you could say but later on uh you became more of a reporter i became more of a hacker and we both uh excelled at what we did before too long you were doing columns you were doing shows uh i was speaking at defcon uh, i was speaking at others i spoke at hope i spoke at pumpcon and uh we both watched our careers on and off the charts take off and uh but it all started with that one moment del chai what i appreciated about him was he steered me away from the quote wannabes the ones who like to brag and tell me they're super great when they're actually not and he did introduce me to loft heavy industries and some of the other real hackers in the community who also became friends and associates and i'd take them out to beer and we'd have more interviews and if it wasn't for Del Chai making those introductions, if it wasn't for him showing me around, I don't know where I'd be today. Um, I probably would have made it, but I probably would have wasted a lot of time getting here. So I do appreciate all of those intros. And we've stayed in touch ever since, haven't we? Like- oh, yeah. All, the, all those years, every once in a while, I get a phone call saying, hey, I need a quote about this or what the hell is that? And what is this piece of electronic equipment I'm holding? And I would tell you what it is. And you know, we would go exploring down rabbit holes of, uh, I remember like when the first Raspberry Pi came out, I showed you a few things that you could do with it. And uh, it's just, it's been a, an interesting partnership of exploration and learning and uh, seeing what's out there. And it's really kind Mm -hmm. of important to me because not a lot of people get the opportunities that we've had. There are people, they like to say, you know, in flyover country, who, you know, DEFCON is only a dream, or they don't even know that it exists. And getting that word out there and showing people that there's a community waiting for you. You know, if you are more into, you know, hacking with a computer than racing cars or jumping off of cliffs or whatever, there's a community out there waiting for you. And it saves some lives, it makes some lives, it makes mm-hmm. some people's careers. It's it, it, it's the act of getting it out there. and and. Although I don't like using the term, a lot of people say you've got to find your tribe. Yeah. And uh, that's what that's what a lot of what both of us have done over the years. 
It's really funny because when I worked for um, Computer World and they would have me out to Massachusetts for a company meeting, inevitably I would end up with the geeks in the basement. I wasn't comfortable with my fellow reporters, but I was totally comfortable with the geeks. Is that weird? Not really, because you came off as a human being and not a reporter. You know, you, you didn't come in there to see the freak show. You came in there to see computer enthusiasts and you treated them that way. You, you was like, you know, oh, look at the weird hacker, funny clothes, weird smells, what's that on the monitor, woo-woo. You know, you were like, okay, what are you doing? How is this part of your life? How is this part of, you know, what you do? How is this you? And, and you know, you related to people as human beings, not a spectacle to put on TV. And that made all the difference. Well, I always saw everything you're doing as harbingers for what's going to come. Way back in the 90s, when I worked on the book about Kevin Mitnick, a couple of his friends were a little creepy, but I treated them nicely because they also knew what was coming. They were showing us what's coming. You've been showing us. Everybody's been showing us. And now look how bad cybercrime is. Well, that was inevitable because with any technology, crime eventually becomes part of it. Uh, when they invented the telephone before too long, we had robo dialers and we had, uh, you know, cold calls and we had uh, spam calls. You invented the car before long, we had the getaway car. Uh, you invented the walkie talkie. Next thing you know, we got CB radios with smoky reports. That is, you know, where are the cops so I can speed? Crime is inevitable, just like, you know, the, the good and the bad is going to creep into everything. So, Cybercrime was inevitable. The level it's grown to was inevitable. Every time we make some kind of new advance, there'll be the good guys and the bad guys taking advantage of it. Uh, when we finally catch up to Star Trek and, you know, we have transporters, someone's going to use the transporter to instantly visit their grandmother in Iowa, and someone's going to use the transporter to pop in and out of a bank and rob a bank. It's, it's inevitable. But uh, the other thing is, if you get into information security, it's called job security, because there's always going to be somebody out there trying to do something they're not supposed to do. And well, that's a job opportunity. I agree. Um, in fact, that leads right next to my next question, which is, you know, you've had some pretty cool jobs in the real cyber world where most of them um, throughout our interviews have been unattributable because you've been in some pretty cool places where you've worked. Um, also, you've worked with some good hacking groups out there and on your white hack activities. And I'm wondering if you can share how all of those roles shaped your career as a technologist. When I first started out, I was the typical stuttering, giggling fanboy who, you know, didn't know which end of the capacitor made sparks. And I came from a very rural community and I fought to the very edge of that, you know, to, to even to say the word computer was anathema in some places, you know, it's like, what is this computer stuff? We're watching Dukes of Hazard, you know, get out of here. And I, I was the one, you know, pointing away at my TRS-80, trying to get my hands on an Apple II. So I was always trying to find the, the, the people and the technology to play with. And it, you know, after hitting Hope, it all opened up for me. I met, I, I met a veritable cornucopia of people who have been very instrumental in creating who and what I became. I'm no angel. I, I, I've made my mistakes. I've said things. I've done things that 
everyone makes mistakes along the way. And it's good to have people there to stop you and say, hey, stop that. You're screwing up. Do this instead. Or one of the most famous pictures of me out there is this picture of me and Weld Pond at a party. And he just looks like he's laying down the wisdom on me. And that's exactly what he was doing. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) you know, coming together with people and learning things, even though it was awkward, even though I was, and I didn't even know it at the time, I was a goth and I didn't even know it, which is kind of funny. And because I ended up becoming a gothic DJ. But, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was or who I was. I just knew that I had this, you know, love for technology and being around the right people, being exposed to the right people and doing the right things around the right people just led me to a career that I would never have had otherwise. Yes, you've got a lot of good background. And uh, when I need technical advice on anything from the book I'm writing to an article I'm writing, whether or not you're quotable, you always help me with that information. And I really appreciate it. Um, Do you remember, was it Hope 2000 when they released Back Orifice? That was BO2K. Yeah, okay. The original Back Orifice was before that. But yeah, BO2K was in the year 2000, as I recall. That was the boo-boo out of me when I went to that session. Well, you know, because remember, it it was a remote administration tool and not a hacking tool, so it shouldn't have scared anyone. Well, the DOD showed me how to turn on other people's cameras and microphones from afar during a demonstration. That's all part of remote administration. (laughs) True that. (laughs) Polymorphism, too. Where was that introduced? Because I remember that was the other one that scared me. The 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 person or the technology? The technology where you could uh, change the virus signature so quickly that antivirus couldn't possibly keep up with it. Oh, yeah, there was that. uh, Shikata Nagai was another tool that did that. Uh, Eventually, things evolve. I mean, it's a cat and mouse game. Good guys versus bad guys. Uh, You know, good guys have this tool. Bad guys circumvent it. Good guys have this tool, bad guys circumvent it. I'm using that, you know, loosely. Yeah. Because when it comes to encryption and cryptography and even even polymorphic communication, uh, sometimes there's a gray area there where there are no good guys and there are no bad guys. Like uh, helping people in other countries who are being oppressed, hacktivism, uh, things like that. You, You have to understand that it's not a black and white world. It's a very gray world. And sometimes you get involved with things that you know are morally or ethically right when they may or may not be legal or they may be quasi-legal or it's, uh, you know, pray to God that you don't get caught. You know, that's basically how I classify them in my cyber thriller book where the hackers are trying to break Globecom that owns the world through human chip implants. And they have to do a lot of gray stuff to break Globecom. But they're saving the world. the hacktivists of today are the heroes. Yep. Okay. Yep. They they are the people that are taking the technology and using it for freedom, for uh, breaking down barriers. When the internet launched, you know, a lot of people jumped on it and we were like, this is great. You know, I can communicate with my pen pal in Germany in 15 seconds and, and, or be, you know, being on IRC or something. But the thing is eventually the governments started clamping down and, it became a resource and it became a lifeline for some people. Even now with the, uh, with the Russian war that's on right now, 
people mm-hmm. in the Ukraine are leaning on the internet. Elon Musk uh, even donated equipment to help communications roll. It's become a tool for heroes. And I don't want to say that we have uh, a problem, but I mean, the world has problems. Mm -hmm. Remember you and I talked once in an interview about a a digital Kent state that we thought might happen, or I thought might Mm -hmm. happen. And even though it never did, uh, a lot of things very similar did happen. So we have to look at it through the perspective of who our heroes are, the people like uh, who are using the technology for good, not just good, good, like helping little old ladies across the street, but helping people in oppressive countries and oppressive regimes, or even teaching people, you know, here's how you can code. Here's a Raspberry Pi, learn how to do this. And the next thing you know, you have a job and it's the first real money your family has seen in three generations. Uh, you know, we, we're changing the world and changing the world is never easy. It's never simple. It's never black, it's never white. It's always gray, but it's always, if you think about it and you follow your heart, it's always for the good. Great. And a moment ago, you talked about finding out you were a goth. That's really cool. And that's one of the things that you shared with me also when we went to one of the goth clubs in, I think it was in a meatpacking district in Manhattan. Manhattan and, yes, it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I saw across the room this woman that became a character in my book later named Allure because she was so unusual. You call her Kitty. And um, I just actually included a scene from that in my Cyber Thriller series because it was super cool. Can you explain sort of what the goth scene was like in New York? Um, I remember them opening the red velvet uh, uh, stop, you know, curtain for you, not a curtain, but the part where they block you and they opened it up and let you in the front of the line and everybody else still had to wait. So I know you held position in that community too. Can you explain? I was a DJ and that that's just a simple thing that any DJ gets. Okay. Uh, you know, any resident DJ in a club will get, you know, escorted to the front of the line plus whoever's with them. Uh, that's nothing terribly special, but if you've never done it before, yeah, it is special. Uh, you know, I went from riding a riding lawnmower, trying to make hay, listening to a Walkman, Right. And the next thing you know, I blinked and I'm behind the DJ booth, you know, with some of the more famous names out there. And uh, it's it's a hell of a transition. Uh, the, the gothic scene is hard to describe because you ask three goths, you'll get four different answers. <laughs> you, you, you have to find it within yourself. Yes, it's the dark, the moody, the broody, the, you know, I like Edgar Allan Poe instead of Sarah Jessica Parker. And, you know, people find it for themselves. There's no, I'm not going to be a gatekeeper. I'm not going to say, if you want to be goth, you must be this. You must be that. Because everyone finds their own way to that community, just like people find their way to the hacker community. So uh, for me, it was a combination of music, literature, uh, and people that, uh, that drew me in. And I realized, hey, this is actually where I sort of belong. I don't belong over there with the guys, you know, with the eyes on shirts on mm-hmm. and the pressed collars talking about there, you know, what they're going to do when they get out of Harvard, because to hell with that, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm over, I'm over here. I, I'm over here with the hackers and the crackers and the, the people, you know, trading off, trading off software and 
tearing things apart and running Christmas tree lights all over our cars. And it's only 1982. You know, there were no LED lights back then. You know, we had, we had to make our own everything. And uh, building projectors out of Fresno lenses and old TVs and then saying to hell with it and going to the club and listening to The Cure all night long and drinking rum and Cokes until it all made sense. Uh, it's a life. It's a lifestyle. And it either works for you or it doesn't. But that also became part of what's in no your Noidutu series. You have a DJ in there who has a storyline. You have a scientist slash researcher slash geologist, I believe, um, historian. Um, and so how did this filter into your series and how well is your series doing? You know, one of the first things anybody tells anybody who says, I want to start writing something, the first piece of advice you always get, and the most dismissed piece of advice you get, is write what you know. And it's honestly one of the absolute best pieces of advice anyone could ever give you when you start out. Now, I had been writing short stories, interviews, magazine pieces in New York for a while, but I never actually sat down and took my fiction seriously until about 2002 and then i had my first uh, short stories published in cthulhu sex magazine which was a horror magazine and then from there uh i was published in, in, in an article here an article there sometimes it was tech sometimes it was fiction sometimes it was just stream of consciousness uh and the what happened was I started to look around me because when you're in Manhattan, you are surrounded by some of the most diverse collections of people, not just in just every kind of person you can possibly believe, every technology, every profession, they're there. You will see a geologist, you will see someone who's uh, studying Russian literature, you'll see someone who's doing archaeology. You'll see someone who can read tarot cards. Uh, you'll see someone who can show you how to draw the lesser seal of Solomon in the sand in front of the park. And you take this amazing stew of people and you can invent characters from it and you can build stories from it. Uh, Noidutu is based on experiences I had in Manhattan, both in underground clubs and in esoteric salons and bars and warehouse parties. And the whole story is based on mythology. It's based on Finnish mythology set in the year 2000. Uh, it's doing very well. Uh, in fact, we've released our second trade paperback. Uh, we're in about 25 stores right now. And uh, we're always expanding. Uh, we're just finishing up issue number 12. Uh, of what we assume is going to be a 20 issue run and it's only the first of many you know comics that i've been putting out there or graphic novels that i'm putting out there some more serious than others uh but it's a long hard road you've got to listen to a lot of advice you've got to make a lot of sacrifices and there's absolutely no guarantee you're going to attract the attention of anything but your closest friends and i've actually met new people uh, I met some amazing people along the way, and some of them, you know, very high up in the comics industry, and they're all amazing people, and for some reason, they managed to put up with me, <laughs> being like, you know, the, the, the new kid on the block who doesn't know, you know, what, what shoe to put on what foot, 
And I've gone from that to having at least three comics out there and more to come. That's awesome. Um, you also did a, a book where you put all these comics together so far, right? Right. That's the trade paperback. Yes. That's okay. like you, we collect the first uh, every every uh, five or ten issues. Uh, we put together a book with uh, those issues inside of it. It's referred to as a trade paperback. So issues one through five come out and then a trade paperback and six through ten a trade paperback. Now, some people prefer those because they don't want to wait the, you know, for the next issue to come out. They want to read, you know, five issues all at once. And some people like the, you know, delayed gratification of waiting for uh, for an issue to come out. The problem with indie comics is it's almost never on a regular basis. You never know if it's going to be 30 days, 60 days. You, you, you've got to pay the bills. You, you've got to have a job and pay the bills while you do it. So <clears throat> for some people, they wait for the uh, the graphic novels to come out. They wait for the trade paperbacks to come out. And that's when they jump in. And that's when their interest peaks. Well, you still owe me book 11. I put an order in before you got busy with DevCon. So be sure you get that sent to me because I'm on the edge of my seat. Um, I'm one of those people who likes to wait and get the books one at a time. And then I'm going to be keeping your trade paperback as a collector's item. So that's pretty exciting. I have a link um, where you can get these comics to pay for them. And it's the Omniverse of AP Delchai at HTTPS and tropic-designs.com. That's E-N-T-R-O-P-I-C-designs.com. Delchai, you also have another link where they can get them for free. I'm not privy to that, but I can put that on the abstract for this. That's at uh, Global Comics. Uh, with an X, G-L-O-B-A-L-C-O-M-I-X.com. Uh, Global Comics is an online uh, clearinghouse for a lot of indie comics, and you can read all of my comics for free on there right now. Uh, you can't buy them. Uh, you can't, I don't do digital downloads yet, but you can read all of them. And uh, I did that because... People who want to buy the hard copies will still buy the hard copies and people who would not or who can't or don't want to buy the hard copies can get engrossed in the story and become part of it. And, uh, you know, it's a win win situation at the end of the day, maybe not financially, but the name of the game with indie comics is getting your name out there and getting your information out there and getting people to read uh, what you've made and hearing, you know, hearing them say, hey, I love this. This is great. And sometimes they say, hey, you know, this is like the nickelback of comics. And, <laughs> you know, you, you, you've got to take the you got to roll with the punches. But, you know, if you don't hear anything, you know, what good is it? Well, I think the storyline is compelling and even beautiful. And I think the art is very compelling and beautiful. So you've got a good combination going there. Um we all, all of us creatives seem to have the same issue of getting word out about what we've written, getting interest into reading it. And um, I'm going through the same thing with my Cyber Thriller series, which is a great segue for ending the show. Um, in our next show, we'll actually be interviewing another creative in our hacker world, Richard Thiem. He's a counselor to spies and hackers alike and the author of the fictional spy tale, Mobius, 
a memoir. He's currently working on his second book, and we'll be talking to him in the very next interview. In the meantime, thank you, audience, for turning in. And Del Chai, really fun talking to you on the record on a uh, um, podcast like this. This is the first time we've done this. So thanks very much for being our first guest for my new debut, uh, Side Beats with ITSP Magazine. You're very, very welcome, and good luck with this. I uh, hope you take off for the stars. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Beat Podcast with Deb Radcliffe, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.